0: You'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John. We're in the Gospel of John this morning. We're in 1 John tonight. We'll be primarily focused on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. But we will begin um, back at verse 5 of chapter 1. And read to verse 2. 1 John chapter 1, verse beginning in verse 5 and going to 2 verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That sends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessings to it. Let us pray once more. Our Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will bless it as we unfold it tonight. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, I have held a few different jobs in my life, as I'm sure some of you have had jobs as well. And there always seems to be that one co-worker, that one co-worker who is not the greatest, you might say, at their job, (coughs) though they think they really are, and they will sometimes fumble around and make mistakes, but to add insult to injury as if it were, I mean, you can... Forgive many blights and work if they're a nice guy and they're trying hard. Uh, at least I can. But this one is not so nice. He's not so friendly. He insists upon his own way. And not only does he insist upon his own way, but when he gets called out for his lack of productivity, you might say, he always gets in trouble and he has no one really to advocate for him on our behalf on his behalf. Well, friends, you and I need to realize that you and I are there in some way, even in the Christian life, uh, such co-workers in the work of the, in the work of the ministry of the church as we are going about day by day living and moving according to uh, the commands of God for our lives. Now in this first epistle of John, there is a number there are a number of things that we can point out about it. I mentioned uh, this morning that this the main purpose of this epistle is very much like that of the gospel of John. That we may believe the one true and living God as he set forth to us in the gospel. But John is, has a specific purpose also in mind. Something that uh, is riddled itself throughout the entirety of the book. Uh, for one, on the one hand, in John chapter 2... There is a particular group of Christians within the community that John is writing to that are insisting that they have no sin and that they have not sinned. And what happens is when they fall into sin or any of them do fall into any particular sin, they fall away. They're being deceived by believing that they can have some sort of perfection in this life. And John actually responds to that in chapter 2, that they went out from us, why? Because they were not of us. That's why in this passage, John is trying to address that concern on the one hand, because there are evidently some in his audience that believes, well, okay, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with people who are perhaps great leaders in the faith falling away? What are we to do with uh, people we would otherwise look up to not really living up to what we thought they would do? It's like, you know, they say never to meet your heroes because you'll be sorely disappointed. What do you do in that situation when you're very disappointed with how things have turned out? Not just in the lives of others as people that you look up to, but even in the lives of yourself. Even in your own lives when you yourselves are in the sin and you are most frustrated with it and you find yourselves wondering, am I a Christian? Am I forgiven? And is God not angry with me for my sin? Now with all of those things in mind, we need to know what John is actually teaching us here and it's, and it's really very simple. That Jesus Christ is the advocate and the atonement that you need. He's the advocate and the atonement that you need, that I need, as we live the Christian life. And we'll see that under two way, in two ways. Uh, we're dealing with that idea of Christ being our advocate, and then the second with Christ being our atonement. And it's divided up respectively in verses 1 and 2. So Christ is our advocate, and Christ is our atonement. Let's look under that first point in verse 1, that Christ is the advocate all sinners need. He says, he begins by saying, my little children. Now that is a term of endearment that finds its way throughout the entirety of the epistle of John. It finds itself in light like, you know, about seven or eight times throughout the entire epistle. And it's, it's not the only one. He'll sometimes address his readers as a beloved. Even, and what he's highlighting here in this verse again, that finds again it finds itself throughout this uh, epistle is his father, almost you could say, fatherly concern for the for his audience. He's concerned that they are uh, broken by the sins in their lives and in the sins of other people. That those again, those people that they are looking up to most. He's Dealing with the fact and considering that there are people in his audience that have very weak consciences. They, uh, you might say, are easily perplexed by the brokenness, the sin, the fallenness in this world. They're perplexed by it because they have been told the lie that that we are perfections. We can attain some sort of perfection of holy standards in this life. Now, if we look back into verse 8 and 10 that we read at the beginning, Jesus, uh, or rather John, actually addresses that somewhat directly and indirectly. He says, if we have no sin, and then he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So he's dealing with two things there. On the one hand, he's dealing with our sin nature. He expects that even as believers that we still have a sin nature, that we are going to sin. So John is, in, in showing his tender, <coughs> fatherly concern, is not missed on the fact that we still have a sin nature and that in verse 10, he very much expects us to sin. And he's trying to counsel them in that way to say, look, if any of you do sin, what he goes on to say, he's expressing his purpose. I am writing these things to you. So that you may not sin. He's addressing the fact that there are going to be times in your life. That you are going to be tempted to lie to those in authority over you. That you are going to try to stretch the truth in a way that it ought not to be stretched. He is going, he is very well of the fact that for many of us in this world. That we are going to be affected so by sin, and we are not even going to be able to pay much attention to it, because perhaps even our hearts may have been darkened to it, have been closed off to it. That needs softening, you might say. He's very well aware of this. And under that guise, he is giving them the command so that you may not sin. He's he's sort of warning them, as it were, not to sin. It's like when you tell your kids not to play in the street. Why do you tell them not to play in the street? Well, it's so that a car doesn't come out behind them and surprise them. Uh, You are doing it for their own safety. You're doing it for their own good. And that's really what John is trying to do. He's not trying to restrict their Christian liberty by reminding them of rules and obligations that they have to maintain, no, what he's actually doing here is reminding them that there is great freedom in submission to Christ's law. But on the other hand, knowing that even when they break it, they are not alone. There are many of us that when we fall into sin, great sin, terrible sin, will struggle with that nagging question of, why. first of all, why can't I escape it? But also, does the Father even love me? And we, we consider that this morning, that, well, yes, he does. That's why he sent his son Jesus into the world to die for you. He sent his son into the world that you may have hope, that you may have forgiveness of sin. And even though when you do fall into sin, that the atoning sacrifice that Christ made on your behalf seals you by his blood, purchases the redemption that you have in Christ, So that you may enjoy eternal life with him. But he realizes and recognizes and is dealing with us today. That even when you do sin throughout the course of your life. That you have an advocate with the father. He's angry with your sin. Yes. You must repent of it. Whatever it might be. But if you do. You do have an advocate with the father. And that's what we see in the second half of the verse. That we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the idea expressed here in this word, the, the advocate, Jesus as the advocate, is used in another context as well in, coincidentally, John's gospel. It's used in chapter 14, verse 26, uh, where in that context, John is describing the holy spirit he's describing the holy spirit as our comforter when he's talking using the word paraclete that's the actual word he's referring to it as the spirit in the world is a witness to the world uh, of the lord jesus christ through us we he, we people should see jesus is essentially what he's saying that when we fall into sin or we get we get bogged down with the uh trip transgressions or the trials of this life we have a comforter with the spirit witnessing with our spirits of our uh, of Christ's work in us but the idea here expressed is more in terms of relation with Christ to the Father um, the idea of an advocate has something of a legal connotation to it now back in the old days in the US court system if you had to you know go before a judge or anything like that, you could usually bring someone in as something of a character witness. You can kind of do it somewhat today, as insofar as they relate to the facts of the case. But it, it was a lot more common back in back in the uh, '50s, '60s, and '70s, and until the late '2000s. And '2000s it started to go out of stretch. But the idea essentially is that. If you have a friend to come in and you know bear witness to your character and testimony, the judge, as far as the case goes, may be able to be a little more lenient with you. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is doing for you in this passage. Is what John is teaching for us in this passage. He's teaching you something that, when I first heard it, and when I had a friend that first heard it, it moved us to tears. To have Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, perfect in every way. Like unto us in every way, and yet without sin. And before the throne of God above, it's as if Jesus is standing here to your right or to your left, however it might be. And when you're looking down, he's looking up. And he's saying, Father, forgive them. You have a friend that's pleading for you on, not on your behalf, not so much on the basis of your righteousness or any work that you could do, but solely on the righteousness of himself. That's why he's referred to as the righteous one. It's it's highlighting the the righteous character, his only ability, him having the only one to be the, able to keep uh, God's holy standards, and by that is able to... Keep the standards and plead based off that standard of God's righteous law and plead on your behalf. He keeps it. He is righteous. And he pleads on your behalf. If you remember back in Numbers chapter 14 or 15 where the people of Israel, for example, are caught in the wilderness. They are what, They're caught in sin. They, they've just made the golden calf. And what is does Aaron say, well, it just popped out and the people made me do it. And we're worshiping him in the wilderness. And the result of that from our Lord was that, uh, well, I'm going to wipe the people of Israel out and Moses, I'm going to start over with you. And in that passage, Moses, in interceding on behalf of the people, says this. Essentially, Lord, what would that say to the world around us of your great name? That you are not powerful enough to deliver this great people. That they would have been better off in Egypt. That you cannot, you have no power and you have no name in order to save them. And that by that name it will dishonor you. And you know what the Lord did? The Lord heard Moses' prayer. And he says, I will relent from my wrath. And because on the basis of your testimony, Moses, I will relent my wrath and will forgive this people. Now, they did have undergo punishment. They remained in the wilderness for another 40 years, as if 40 wasn't enough. Uh, 40 before, I mean. But the Lord showed his judgment, but he also showed his grace in that... He heard Moses' plea and relented from it and turned from it and let the people continue on. And he built up the name of Israel as he promised to Abraham. And friends, I just have to ask you this question. If God Almighty will hear the words of his servant Moses, how much more do you think that he will hear the words of his beloved son that says, Father, forgive them? Not on the basis of their righteousness, not on the basis of anything they have done, but solely on the basis of who I am, what I have done, what you have said to me, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You chose them to be conformed to my image. Lord, maintain that promise. And he does. And he does. And the thing is that Christ is constantly making that, doing that intercessory work for you now. And the second verse, what we see in verse two, we see that Christ is then the atonement that all sinners need. This provides the basis for Christ's advocacy. This provides the basis for Christ's advocacy. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, some of your translations may just go ahead and spell the word out as, uh, as an atoning sacrifice. You may have the King James or, in my case, ESV or something else that will keep the word as propitiation. Now, what's accompanied with these two ideas is simply this, that uh, based off of what Christ did on the cross, you have two realities that come into play. You first of all have the forgiveness of sin, and the second thing that you have is the appeasement of God's wrath. Now that is taking into consideration the atonement, atoning sacrifices that you see back in Leviticus chapter four and two, uh, four and five. Excuse me. That in those passages, what would happen is when the people would sin or commit some sin, you know. Petty theft or something like that. And they confessed it. They brought it before the high priest. They would essentially have to kill the lamb, let its blood run out. And as its blood is doing that, the guilty party would have to take their hands, put it on the lamb. And as a sense, transferring or committing their sin to the animal. So that when the animal was put on the altar and it went up in flames, it did those two things of appeasing God's wrath on the one hand. Their, but their forgiveness would also be incorporated in that as well. They, their sins would be forgiven. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done. And he didn't do it in such a way that, you know, it would have to be done every year on the Day of Atonement or every time you sin. But it was a once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made. Once-for-all so that in him you may have full and free forgiveness. That's, the old, that's, that's really the end of it all. Christ made a once-for-all sacrifice so that no more blood needed to be shed. What he did, finished it. That's what what it means when he says on the cross, the telecite, it is finished. The debt has been paid. It's over. And there's nothing more that needs to be done. Now that's a blessed thought. That there is a sure foundation on which Christ is advocating... But that it actually secures my salvation as much as it secures your salvation. So I can rest easy at night at some level, knowing that the Lord of glory has forgiven my sins, even when I do sin. When I think harshly of another brother and sister. Or break the ninth commandment and not holding the truth in its integrity. Anything like that. You have to come to him to his throne of grace to receive that grace, to receive that forgiveness. But know that if you do come to seek for forgiveness of sin, it is freely offered. It is freely given. And you come to Christ so that you may have it on the basis of his shed blood and his continual work for you. Now, they continue on in verse 2 that he doesn't just do this for ourselves, but he does this for the whole world. Now, it was, it, the, the idea again here presented in verse 2 is very similar to what we see uh, saw earlier this morning in John chapter 3, that he so loved the world. Now, does it mean that Christ secured the salvation of every single person in the whole entire world? No, it doesn't. In order to answer that question very, very directly, and again, seeing this in conjunction with what we saw this morning, we can interpret it very easily if we look back to verse 1 and see who his subject is. My little children. Believers. He's talking about believers in all the world without distinction with respect to their race, their social status, or whatever. <coughs> Everybody can come to the throne of grace to the uh, high priest, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that we can obtain full and free forgiveness. He brings. He says everybody can come to seek forgiveness of his people, his children, Christ's children can come and find forgiveness whenever and wherever they might be. And so the reality is that some people... There are those who might would see this as somehow that Christ is offering this to the every, all the people in the world without distinction. But again, it's just not what's happening here. He's saying that you, if you're in Asia, in Korea, in Japan, or wherever, you may have full and free forgiveness. You can have forgiveness based on Christ's blood, whether you're four years old and you tell mommy that I want to ask Jesus into my heart. Or when you're near your deathbed and you're saying, Lord, purge me with hyssop. Make me clean as I enter into my rest with you. Now, I've mentioned in numerous contexts my my grandmother. Um, It's very, it's, her last days provided so much that was etched in my mind. Uh, particularly with respect to how she went home to be with the Lord, and it is a way that I wish in God's time that I could go as well. There's one time she was talking to me, and she was saying uh, things like, I wonder why he's leaving me here. It's important to remember she had a stroke and couldn't walk anymore, and she had lost her use of her left arm. That's important context here. And she says, why can't he just take me home? And towards the end of it all, what she was beginning to realize, and she says, I don't want to go to hell. I want him to forgive my sin, my sin of pride. Of self-reliance and that was revealed to her in her darkest of moments whether you're four years old or whether you're near the end of your days there's never a time where you cannot where you don't have to rather come to Jesus and expect him to be harsh but you can come and he offers forgiveness to you And he's offered today. He's offered today in his person and his work to save any sinner and to bring them to come home. And he makes his continual sacrifice for you, for my grandmother, for me, because of what he has done. And so when we consider this, we need to realize that there is a great hope and ground for our assurance of salvation. This passage is used in our confession of faith as a proof text, if you will, for assurance of salvation. Uh, Our confession teaches that you can have assurance of salvation. It's not going to be as strong today as it was yesterday, and it may be even weaker tomorrow. But because of the work that Christ has done on your behalf, even when you fall into sin, grievous sin, terrible sin, the Lord can forgive you and gives you some measure of his assurance, his spirit witnessing with your spirit of the work that Christ has done on your behalf. So you and I don't need to be like that co-worker who uh, insists on his own way. Rather, we need to insist on Christ's way. Because Christ's way is advocating for you on your behalf before the Father and saving you from your sins. So go before and remember that work that he's done especially as he has uh, done it in this Passion Week that we celebrate every week for 2,000 years. Let's pray.